Good morning. Ah. Welcome to the family gathering. You don't look very welcome. Uh, uh, there you go. <laughs> so I'm Pete. Um, Jay is uh, not with us this morning, as John said. Uh, Jay is uh, in Aruba by now, hopefully, um, with his dad. And uh, I believe they have the ashes of uh, his mother. So they're there to uh, bring some closure to that uh, episode of, of uh, family life. So we're going to pray for them in a moment. But uh, just to let you know that. So um, you have to listen to me. Yeah, I know. Actually, it reminded me uh, when I was uh, uh, thinking this morning that uh, the last time I spoke was in Shadrach. Ray, yeah, I was thinking, and I had to speak to an interpreter, which was a first for me. So James wants an interpreter now. I knew that would happen. (laughs) Yeah, so hopefully you can figure me out without an interpreter. But, um, yeah, I think a piece of me is still there in Shadrach, too. If you have the opportunity to go in the summer, um, if you haven't been yet, then do go. It's... uh, the pictures are beautiful. The reality is much more beautiful. It's, it's really good to go. All right, so this morning we're going to continue with our series, True and Better. Uh, you may remember that uh, Jay took us uh, through a particular episode in the life of David last week. We've been doing this for 13 weeks, or we're going to be doing this for 13 weeks. I think we have three left. Anyway, as many weeks as there are to Easter is how many we have left, all right? And uh, this morning we're going to, uh, to uh, touch on Solomon, but a little bit in a moment. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we ask you to come and you would be amongst us and inhabit this place. And uh, we just want to pray especially for Jay, wherever he is right now, and for his family, that you would bless them. And that, Lord, your love would surround them in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, I chose to talk on Solomon, and I've never done that before, and I've never studied Solomon before, so you're going to wonder why. Um, and the reason is, you'll get, I will get to the reason. Um, it's my favorite topic, but it's not Solomon. So, at some point, you'll probably click what my favorite topic is, and we'll get back to it. I like to think about the the big picture when I look at Scripture. For me, God's story is just a fantastic um, epic that uh, we get to explore together. And, you know, last week we were quite focused on David and Goliath. You remember perhaps that David, uh, that uh, Jay talked to us about how um, in the slaying of Goliath that um, the Lord helped us to understand that he fights our battles and that He fought our greatest battle, taking our place on the cross. And that was a focus on a very specific incident in David's life, which is voluminous in Scripture. Um, So this week, we're going to look at a wide breadth of what happened with Solomon and uh, see what we learn from that. Jesus gave us some clues regarding Solomon because he mentioned Solomon a couple of times. Um, during his ministry, 
Um, particular per- particularly pertinent occasion was when some of the Pharisees um, and the teachers came to Jesus and they were pestering him for a sign. And he was refusing to give them a sign, except that he said something about the prophet Jonah and the sign of Jonah. And then um, he said this. He said, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. This is Jesus. So the Queen of the South refers to um, the Queen of Sheba, um, probably came from Ethiopia. She visited Solomon. Um, She did not return disappointed. She was astonished and amazed uh, of all that she learnt and saw with Solomon and his kingdom. And Jesus is saying something greater than that is here now with you. And Jesus was among them. So let's take a look at Solomon first, see what we can learn a little more about his life and, and how that went, and then see if we can understand some of the depth and the mystery of what Jesus was referring to when he said something greater than Solomon is here. David became king of Israel after Saul in about 1000 BC. So it's not that long ago. Um, I, was, I was trying to figure it out. I thought it's about 150 generations ago. So, yeah, great, 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 few greats, granddads. Ago. Not, not that far, not long ago. Um, and, and we proceeded in our survey of the Old Testament till we've got at least to this place, which is a thousand years before Christ. And we've got three or four weeks left. We should be good, right? Um, And we're working, the events that we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, that we're working through, are really in six books, which you find in the middle of the Old Testament, roughly. Um, They're 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. So it's all the way in the middle there. And some of the stories are repeated, and you read them, and you read them again in the next book, and so on. But that's where it, it all takes place. And I think we're entering this week in what we might call the golden age of God's story. So certainly if you didn't know what was ahead, um, then you'd see it as the golden age. God's chosen people are in the promised land. It's been 500 years since they escaped Pharaoh and Moses led them through the desert. The Israelites demanded a king. But the Lord expressed some concerns about that. And King David is now established. Most of the enemies, most of their enemies are beaten. There is some stability and there is peace. The ground is fertile. Um, The kingdom is set to build and grow. Uh, It's not Eden, but it's getting closer. It's, It's a golden time. It's a glorious time. It's a time when... They're looking to see God fulfill the promises that he made to them. So we're going to pick up the story with David and then move on to his son Solomon. David was 
relaxing one day. I guess he wasn't running anymore and he wasn't uh, concerned about enemies. Comfortable in his house. And one night reflecting, he says to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, not to be confused with Noah's ark, was was the the box, if you like, that Moses made um, to put the the um, tablets in. He made it in the in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. So this is a quite an ancient relic at this point. It's about 450 years old, and it's been in a tent all this time, a worshipful tent. You know, but it's a tent, and and houses have moved on in uh, in the country since then. So, you know, this is a, a hugely revered thing, but David is saying, "Hey, God's still living in a tent. Something's wrong." Nathan says, "Good idea. Go ahead. Whatever you're thinking, the Lord is with you." I guess he thought everything's going good. He's on a roll. Then, that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and David received a promise. And a hold on their message. It says this, When your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He goes on, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Wow. What a promise. So God says to him, no, I'm not going to let you build a house. And he explains um, in other places that there's some blood on David's hands and he doesn't want David to, to be building him the house. But he promises that his offspring will do that and he will establish a kingdom that lasts forever. So God had made a covenant, you remember, in our story with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and now with David. So the golden age, David's son will establish the kingdom to last forever and God will have a new house. All right? So we don't talk much about kingdoms nowadays. We talk about countries and nations, economies, gross domestic product, things like that. But what makes a successful kingdom? Want to give me some ideas? What makes a successful kingdom? People. It's a good start. Order. The rule of law, sorry? A good leader. Leader. Yes, all right, good leader. James? Wow, all right, very good. Yeah? Do you care if you have any money? (laughs) Any others? What makes a successful kingdom? Security. Security. Hungarity. 
good harvest. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're consumerism. This consumerism here is that we, you know, it's a high standard of living, um, lots of infrastructure, cars. You don't like trains, but, you know, good enough that you're not concerned about people's welfare. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Peace, justice, those things. Yeah. Makes a, makes a good kingdom. Well, at least that's the way we think about it. So let's see how Solomon does, right? Solomon became king. Um, it was David's last days. David actually spent a lot of time um, and devoted massive resources, uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, precious stones, marble, to preparing to build the temple that God had promised, God's new home. So that's where he started. But then there was something else that happened early on in Solomon's reign. So uh, we read this in, in 1 Kings. So the king went to Gibeon to offer, this is King Solomon now, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. For that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. I don't even know how you do that, a thousand burnt offerings on an altar. Um, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Wow. What would you ask for? Ask for whatever you want. It's like a blank check from God. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, and have given him a son to sit on the his throne this very day, the son being him, Solomon. Now, Lord God, you have made your servant king, you made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child. I do not know how to carry out my duties. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord, it goes on, was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. God said, since you've asked for this, and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, but have not asked for the death of your enemies or for discernment and administering justice, I will do what I have asked, what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So God bestowed on Solomon a huge personal blessing because of his selfless, cho- selfless choice. If you were given such a responsibility, I don't know, maybe you'd ask God in a similar way. Maybe you'd ask for something which is really your own agenda. 
But Solomon asked this in a very humble way, that he would be wise, that he would be able to govern, that he will have a discerning heart. And God says, yes, and more is what I will give you. So this is the glory of Solomon. Solomon is hugely blessed by God because of his choice and because of the promise that God makes him early on in his reign. We can't go into the whole story. It would take even longer than we have. Um, but, you know, the accounts of his wisdom at work and his role as king um, are great. He's also attributed with having written most of the book of Proverbs, which I'm sure most of you have enjoyed at, at some point. Two other books in our Bibles are also um, attributed to Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes and, and Song of Solomon. And with a king this blessed, what could go wrong with the new kingdom? It's got to work, right? It's going to be the best ever, the culmination of earthly kingdom. We'll see. So Solomon began the construction of the temple um, and the surrounding courtyards. He conscripted about 200,000 men for this work, mostly foreigners. Ah. Um made them work to, uh, to construct the temple over about seven years. Scripture says Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. That site is very important, by the way. Um, it's believed to be the same place that the Lord asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, as well as we read here where the Lord appeared to David. <coughs> And even to this day, um, you know, it's a very important place. The Jews, I'm sure, would love to build a temple there again, but they can't. You know why? Because there are two Muslim holy places sitting on the same rock. Yes, Mount Moriah. has the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque currently built on it. But here's the temple that Solomon built for the Lord. You can't read all the writing, but hopefully you can see the, the uh, type of what we got there. Um, it was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide. So it wasn't a huge building by our modern standards. But you remember, this is not a building that people meet in, like an auditorium, like a theater. That, that wasn't his purpose. This was the house of God. And people did not go in there that often. Only priests. And priests would go into the, the important place, which was a, um, which, which where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, which was, I wrote it down, 30 foot, it's a 30 foot cube. So a 10 yard cube is where the, uh, was the Holy of Holies. There were two massive cherubim. You can kind of see them at the end there. And between them was the Ark of the Covenant. Those cherubim were 15 feet tall, had a 15 feet wingspan. So that was where God was now going to dwell on earth. And, and uh, the, it was a holy place. The, the high priest would go in there once a year to offer atonement. And, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, which um, 
had traveled through the desert with them, probably still housed the uh, tablets with the uh, commandments on them, was in that temple. And this was the first temple. Before there was a tent, um, this temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in about 580 B.C. And then there was a second one built, which lasted until Herod's modifications in 70 A.D. and was then destroyed by the Romans. Solomon had many other accomplishments during his reign. There was no doubt that he was a great king, as God had promised. The nation was at peace. He changed, the, he changed the form of government. There was a much clearer centralized government that he established. He didn't just build a temple. He built palaces, terraces. He built several strategic cities, which were also trade centers. He made up trade routes, which was part of the wealth that came into the country at that time. He, be, he built a, a fleet of ships, um, merchant, a merchant navy. There were trading ships. He had a renowned intellect. Bible reports that he catalogued plant life, so he was a botanist. Uh, He gathered information on birds and animals, reptiles, fish. Um, He was very clever and very wise and and really was trying to understand the world. And of course he wrote, you know, 3,000 proverbs, 1,000 songs, author of books, good king, great kingdom. But then we get to the bad part. God had told the people of Israel just before they entered the promised land. He said, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large large amounts of silver and gold. So Solomon, in 1 Kings we read, his income was was 25 tons of gold per year. That's a lot. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, 700 wives, 300 concubines, including, was included Pharaoh's daughter. Can you hear the serpent? What, what did God really say? No, surely it's good to have 700 wives. I noticed my wife sitting in the back today. Huh? Um, excuse me a moment. I've written a verse down here. As, as Solomon grew old, his wives, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. 
and he built shrines to them around Jerusalem. God was angry with him. God was angry with him. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. That tribe was Judah. So, the culmination of earthly kingdom, great king, great kingdom, sin. You disobey God's word at your peril, right? Tragic result. The greatest earthly kingdom is undermined by pride, by lust, by idolatry. In the... uh, follow-on of Solomon's reign, many of the achievements for Israel under David and Solomon are, are then, they're undone. Solomon is the last ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel. Upon Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam succeeds him, but ten tribes of Israel refuse to accept him as, as king. They split from the United Monarchy There's a northern kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam and Rehoboam continues to reign over the much smaller kingdom of Judah. So, wonderful promise, great kingdom, divided, split. The golden age ends in division of the kingdom. Sin has found a way again. God's plan was maybe bigger than that. But the way we're looking at it The great kingdom is destroyed, broken, shattered. And Solomon was truly great, yet he failed. It's helpful as well to look at some of the things that Solomon wrote. You know, he he had such God-given wisdom. He wrote some um, incredible things. One of the well-known proverbs he wrote was the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so in his good days Solomon understood that knowing God was a prerequisite for real wisdom that that's where he needed to be yet he moved away he turned his back on it he moved away he decided other things could happen as well didn't even listen to his own advice. There's the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've read it, but people have read it. It seems to resonate with with quite a few folk, the the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, It's unusual because it describes a deep dissatisfaction with life. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. 
The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, that the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they return again. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore wisdom, all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. What a desperate revelation. Some conclude that Solomon must have written this book later in life when he had turned his back on the true God. And he was experiencing the, the consequences of his sin and that without being in submission to his king, he had no purpose. He was chasing after wind. It was meaningless. I think we all struggle with the meaninglessness of life from time to time. Our lives are full of things that don't seem to have any eternal significance, right? We have to do them every day. We get into the car, we go to work, we come back. What is the eternal significance? Our money, our possessions, our houses. We can't take them with us. In the end, they are lost. They are dust. Solomon even remarks that passing things on to your children is meaningless because they will, be, they will stupidly squander them on meaningless activities as well. So what Solomon could demonstrate more than any other was that success and riches, even great wisdom, do not bring happiness. Money, possessions, fame, success, they're not linked to happiness. Look at some of the people around you or that you know of uh, in, in this time that are successful, are rich. Are they happy? I've just come back from Shadrach, as I said. A bit of me is still in Shadrach right now. And you notice how people there live in joy and love much. But they have nothing. But their joy is just so obvious. And their welcoming hearts is tremendous. I've concluded as I've worked through this stuff and and thought some more. These things are meaningless because people are eternal but not things. People are eternal but not things. Relationships that change people are not meaningless. They are investments for eternity. 
So your relationships with those around you, with those that God has given you contact with and influence with and love for, they are the things that are important. They are the things that are important. When I was growing up, um, I enjoyed math. I call it maths, but it's the same. Um, much more than getting to know people. My wife says she married a geek. <laughs> um, I like numbers because they they follow rules that never change. When I, when I was in college, I discovered that a new discipline was a new discipline then called computer software. Computers can be very frustrating, but ultimately they're completely predictable because they're just following a set of unambiguous rules very quickly. And they quickly arrive at the inevitable conclusion of your flawed logic. But they get there anyway. <laughs> um, and logic eventually finds a solution as well with such things, if you like deep puzzles, that is. People are not like that. Relationships are not like that. For me, being a geek, head down, dealing with programmable machines was much more comfortable. Really. When I was 18, I heard the good news that, of what Jesus had done for me and accepted the truth of that, and I decided to follow him. And at that time, God planted a seed in me that ultimately changed my character. He made me a husband, a father, and a shepherd of his flock. I can trace it to that point. I changed. I began to value relationships and invest in people. Ah, not perfectly, still learning, but it was a change. It's, it was a start of a change. And being in Chenarak uh, a few weeks back was just you know, a wonderful reminder of that of the importance of giving myself, of giving ourselves to those around us rather than tasks and email and spreadsheets and TV and, you know, all those other things that take our time, video games, whatever we do. So value the relationships that God has given you. Invest in eternity for them, for the rest of your daily toil. Solomon may well be right. That is ultimately meaningless. So let's get back to Solomon's life and uh, see where this leads, shall we? So Solomon was a great king for much of his reign. And um, God had said, as we noted, he is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son. I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. That's, uh, there you go, 2 Samuel 7:13. But did this happen? Forever, I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Did this happen? Was God wrong? What, what was he doing? He's just, we just read how he's tossed Solomon away and he's going to split the kingdom. So let's skip a thousand years. Thousand years forward, okay? Listen, this is what the angel Gabriel 
says to Mary, listen, this is around, you know, around the date we call zero. Gabriel to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is the true and better Solomon. He takes David's throne. It takes some thinking to see it. Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. And in many ways, Jesus was the, the antithesis, the opposite of Solomon. He was poor, not rich. He didn't accumulate anything, but he gave everything he had, even to his own life on the cross. He didn't build a temple in Jerusalem. He visited the second temple, Herod's temple, and he prophesied it would be torn down. And it was. He was called the king of the Jews, but only by the magi at his birth and by the soldiers that mocked him on the day of his crucifixion and death. He had no wives, no concubines, no horses, no chariots, no gold, no navy, no palaces, no throne, no servants. When he entered Jerusalem on the week of, on the last week of his humiliation and suffering and crucifixion, knowing what was going to happen, he was riding on a donkey. And people cheered him as king. And the Pharisees complained. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Because something greater than Solomon is here. He is king. Jesus is the better king. You see it, right? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, King to the glory of God the Father. The whole creation bows to Jesus. Not a good man, but King, Lord and King. John writes in Revelation, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. 
With justice he judges and wages war, and his eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and on his robe and on his thigh this name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the exalted one, the King of Kings, the true and better Solomon above all. I don't think he's a better king. He's the king of kings. He's the bestest king. But not in the same sense as Solomon. Solomon's earthly kingdom, great that it was, was a shadow of the true and better king. So, if his kingship has an alternate form, What of his kingdom? What of his kingdom? Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? The prayer he taught his followers on the Sermon on the Mount? Let's say it together. We only need the first two phrases. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We all know it in different translations with these and thys, don't we? But it's the same words. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there it is. The kingdom. What did he mean? Why did he teach us to pray that? Where does the kingdom come? So we know that Solomon's kingdom was marked by riches, elaborate buildings, structured government, an abundance of resources. His earthly kingdom was the culmination of kingdom. That was easy for us to recognize, right? How do you recognize the kingdom of God? The kingdom that lasts forever. What do you look for? Peace. Thank you. Other thoughts? How do you recognize the kingdom of God? Healing? Yeah, place of healing. Okay, thank you. Sorry, Mr. Aaron. It welcomes the alien and stranger. Yay! <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes. Others? How do you recognize the kingdom of God? What what do you see and you think, there's the kingdom? Selfless love, thank you, yes. Where God has his way, yes. Where he, yes, where he reigns, where he has his way, yes. Thank you. I was walking the dog one night and I went through this. And then I found I was rapidly trying to type into my phone all the things that were suddenly flooding into my mind. Mercy. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Bringing people together. Hope. Love. Peace, we said. Kindness. Generosity. Generosity. 
integrity, people who are who they seem to be, oneness. I, I see something which I didn't have a word for. It's like a growing and becoming um, of gifts, things working together, of lives changing, of people becoming more like Jesus. Faith, faith, trust, and eternity, eternal things. Something that is not just for now. You know, these are the things that make my heart sing. That because this kingdom is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. Once um, being asked by the Pharisees, Jesus says this. The Pharisees asked him, when will the kingdom, when the kingdom of God would come? And Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. You know, we have, um, as a family, we've lived in several different places in the UK and the US. We've moved transatlantic three times. Um, wherever we land up, we look for the kingdom. We look for the kingdom of God. We seek out people that Almighty God is inhabiting by His Spirit. Where we see Him at work, where He see He, where we see He rules and He reigns, and the marks of His kingdom are evident. That becomes our home, our camp. It's all around you, everywhere. But you see, you need. Special eyes, spirit eyes, perhaps. Because it's not about comfort and possessions, money, reputation, power. It's about relationships and about the indwelling of the Spirit of God. It's God-breathed and it's precious and it's all around you. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the desires of the world and the needs of life and he tells us but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own seek first his kingdom and his righteousness because when you're under the king what you first do is you seek his kingdom and where is the temple now? I was going to say, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody who watches Hollywood will tell you that it's, um, it's hidden in a government warehouse. <laughs> but I think that's apocryphal. Um, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is now. Where is the temple? Trick question. Uh-huh, yeah. Do you not know that you are God's temple? You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you personally and collectively. The whole building in Ephesians, it says, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
So when you see that, when you see God's Spirit indwelling in persons and people, when you see Him making something new, when you see Him building kingdom, it is glorious. It is glorious. Don't you long for that? I. Don't you ache for it? <laughs> I do. Um, I know I'm called to be a shepherd in his kingdom, and it fills me with joy and worship for the king when I see those things. Because this kingdom is God-breathed and eternal, and it is, it is forever. It, it is what has been promised to Abraham, to the patriarchs, to David. It's here. You cannot make it happen either. That's another tricky lesson. You cannot make it happen. Solomon did that, tried to do that with gold and horses and cedar from Lebanon. But it's God-breathed. God makes it. Remember when um, Nicodemus came to Jesus talks about it in uh, John chapter 3. And Nicodemus asked him about the kingdom and how he can be a part of this and what's going on. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Unless they are born again. You cannot get there on your own. You must be born again by God's Spirit. It's God's Spirit that makes it happen. You must surrender to Jesus, your King and Savior. You must accept his sacrifice on your behalf and receive the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't done that before, do it now as you pray and respond. Because the glory of the eternal kingdom can only be known if you do that. And if you're in God's kingdom, then you're blessed beyond measure. And probably like me, you want to see more and more of it. You seek his kingdom and his righteousness. You seek out what role God has for you to play in this kingdom. If you need guidance, ask people to Pray with you to understand what God has for you because he has a place in that kingdom for you. You know, we have many needs in in our kingdom body here. We've been waiting on God for folks to lead, um, take a lead with our youth. We've been asking God for a while now to increase our eldership and pastoral team. We need carers, helpers, teachers. But God has a part for you. And it may be none of those things. But God has a part for you. So ask him what that part is. And follow the leading of the Spirit in leading you to that place. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the laborers are few. Solomon was a great king. But there is better, much better. 
the King of Kings, the eternal kingdom, God breathed by the Holy Spirit living in us. And God's story is wonderful how he has brought us to that place. So better king, better kingdom, better wisdom, and better temple. The true and better Solomon. We're going to sing a song shortly, which is a new favorite of mine. Um, We haven't sung it before, so Christina tells me, so we'll see how we get on with it. But it goes roughly like this. Here, it's called Here As In Heaven. The atmosphere is changing now, for the Spirit of the Lord is here. The evidence is all around that the Spirit of the Lord is here. Overflow in this place. Fill our hearts with your love. Your love surrounds us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here as in heaven. We're going to sing in a moment, but let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for such a a wonderful redemption. Lord, Lord, that even as we turned away from you in the garden, that you seek us out and you bring us back and you've shown us your kingdom. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is king and that his kingdom will never end. We thank you, Lord, that that is not built on precious stones or gold, but it is built on things that are far more precious to us. We thank you for love, for mercy, for hope. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us from our sins, that you have redeemed us. We ask, Lord, you help us to continue to reflect your glory and to grow in you, to become more and more that temple which you talked to us about. And Lord, for any here that have not entered that kingdom yet or are uncertain about whether they are part of that kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you would touch their hearts now. We ask, Lord, that you would bring surrender to you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And help us all to understand your sacrifice that has made our new position possible. So give us, Lord, new birth by your Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. Amen.